All right, good morning. I hope you're enjoying pictures. Uh, you might be wondering why I'm showing you these pictures of these delightful children um, helping in the kitchen. Um, well, you have to keep on wondering because I'm not going to tell you. It may be, perhaps, I'm just wanting to prove that I know how to do a PowerPoint. Um, or it might be that they'll have some relevance later on in my message. So you'll just have to wait and see. Thank you, Peter. Okay, well, we're back in Acts again today, and we're actually going to go backwards in Acts today. Um, as I was reading through and just praying about what I should bring, I felt that we should go backwards to a passage that we've already looked at. So we're going to go back to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first seven verses of that chapter. So I'm going to start with reading that passage to you, Acts chapter 6 and the first seven verses. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to wait at tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from amongst yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples it multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So I've got six or seven points that I want to draw out of this passage today, some of them quite short, some of them a bit longer. And the first is that the church was growing, and that was good. Verse 1, and in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. The church was growing. It was one of Luke's themes throughout the book of Acts, that the church was growing. And it was. By the end of the first century, there were Christians from Europe to Asia to Africa. In just another 200 years, that the Roman Empire had adopted Christianity as its official religion. Now, you can argue whether or not that was a good thing, but what it does illustrate is a profound and rapid penetration of the Christian message over a very short time. The church was growing, and it continues to grow. Now, we don't know exact numbers, but there are hundreds of millions of Christians alive today. And even compared to 100 years ago, their distribution is truly global. Over the last century, there has been massive and rapid growth in the church in Asia and Africa. And I hope this excites you. I hope you consider this to be self-evidently a good thing. But why do we think that? Because, you know, not everybody does. There are some that think that all religion is the source of conflict, and they would include Christianity in that. They believe that it encourages discrimination and prejudice and hatred. But even among people that aren't particularly hostile to Christianity, they have some strange ideas about church growth. A drama I watched while I was 
preparing this message, um, portrayed one person giving out leaflets to advertise their church. And they said they were trying to drum up trade, as if the church were some kind of business that needed more customers and presumably more income. Others equate church growth to increasing political influence, and still others see it as a kind of a club that becomes more vibrant and exciting as there are more people in it. Others perhaps see it as a vehicle for social impact, which will be more effective with more people. And even we might be tempted sometimes to think it'd be nice to have some more people, more people that could help set out the chairs or operate the projector and that sort of thing. But if this is all church growth is about, then of course we've completely missed the point. And I know this doesn't apply to anyone here, but even so, I want to start this morning by spelling out why church growth is good. And the reason is very simple. It's simply this, that as the church is growing, it means that there are an increasing number of people that have been rescued from Satan's grasp and brought into new life in Christ. When the church is growing, it means that God's kingdom is expanding. The the extent of his um, reign here on earth is growing. The book of Acts is the start of the story of the unstoppable good news of the kingdom of God. So we see in Acts a continuation of the work that Jesus had started to do. We read continually of signs and wonders being performed. Here in Acts we, 6, we see of Stephen performing signs and wonders. And then right through Acts, we see accounts of the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the poor fed, widows looked after, the church shared what it had so no one was in need. They loved each other and those around them. And everyone saw that what was happening was good. Now, some opposed it anyway. Others were afraid of what they saw. But no one could deny the good things that were happening. When God's kingdom comes, there are obvious and tangible signs of God's goodness and of his love. And these signs point towards a God who is love, the God who is good, the God whose desire it is that everyone should experience the fullness of his love and goodness through restoration of relationship with him. And the message that is preached through Acts is that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a way had been made so that relationship could be restored to all that received the message. And the message of Acts is the same as the message of the church today. It's the same as the message we've been singing about this morning, that God, who is rich in mercy and abundant in goodness, wants each of us and our neighbours and our families, and our friends, and our work colleagues to find fulfilment in him, to find complete happiness in him. Now we know there was nothing that we could do to restore relationship with God, to undo all the wrong that we had done, nothing we could do to wash away our guilt and our shame. But through what Jesus achieved on the cross, God has made a way for these things to be done for us. If we will acknowledge our complete dependence on him and call out to him for mercy. He will be faithful to his promise and bring us back into relationship with him. And the church grows as more and more people discover the truth of God's promises as they experience freedom from captivity, forgiveness for sins, and release from guilt. As more and more people discover new hope and have their eyes opened to the riches of their inheritance. That's why the growth of the church is good news. 
because more people are experiencing God's goodness. And of course, as more people have their lives transformed by God's goodness and his character, so they start to reflect that character. They start to love the things that he loves. They start to love the people that he loves. That's why Christians have always been at the forefront of positive social change, why they love justice, why they care for the sick and the poor, why they go on to tell the good news to other people so that more people can be brought into the kingdom of light and be given a hope and a future. The fact that the church is growing is good news. It was then and it is now. But the second point I want to notice is that there were problems. If one of the central themes of Acts is the growth of the church, of the growth of God's kingdom, and the good that was associated with that, of signs and wonders being performed, and the good news of the gospel being preached, then surely one of the other themes is that it wasn't all plain sailing. And I want to touch briefly on this. Here in Acts 6.1, we read that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we don't know much of the facts around this, and for our purposes today, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, there was a problem. Something was not going right. And there was hurt, and there was division, and there was grumbling. If we look back one chapter, we see the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira. Here in this chapter, we see the conflict over the daily distribution. Then later on through Acts, we will see a succession of problems and issues. There's persecution, doctrinal confusion, division, breakdown of relationship between evangelists and disagreement between church leaders. In the letters of Paul and the other apostles, we see pages and pages devoted to dealing with one problem after another. See, the early church was amazing in many ways. God was clearly at work, but it wasn't perfect. And it's good for us to remember that. So it's easy for us to look back at the New Testament church and see the rapid growth, the amazing miracles, the supernatural events, and then make unfavorable comparisons to the church today and then become discouraged. Because it's easy to look around the church globally and even our church locally and see the problems and the imperfections. See, the fact is, the church is made of imperfect people. And I suggest you don't look around you. You might catch someone's eye, and that could be embarrassing. If you want an example, you can just look this way. We're works in progress. We're being changed. And one day, we will perfectly reflect the likeness of Christ, but it hasn't happened yet. And until that time, we will make mistakes of all kinds, big and small, public and private. And as we as individuals are imperfect, so we as a church are imperfect. But so was the early church, and this is the point. The early church was not perfect, but God still used them. So don't be discouraged and lose heart when everything isn't right, when there are differences and problems and disagreements. Now, obviously, that's not an excuse for complacency, and we'll come back to that. But the point I want to emphasize just now is that we should not let ourselves be thrown off course every time a problem arises, as if it was completely unexpected. Problems will arise, and we have to be prepared for that. We have to be prepared for when we fall, ready to ask for forgiveness, ready to pick ourselves up and press on again. We have to be prepared for others around us when they make mistakes, prepared to be patient, to be forgiving, 
ready to try and help them get up and get on. Problems will arise. But when they do, it's not the end of the road. All is not lost. We have to be prepared to deal with those things and to move on. And that's what happened here in the Jerusalem church. So the next thing I want to consider is how the apostles responded. So point three, how did the apostles respond? Well, the first thing to note is that they didn't ignore the problem. They recognized this was something that needed to be dealt with. So just as I've said that we shouldn't be too discouraged when problems arise, and they arose here in a church where God was evidently at work. So the fact that there are problems doesn't mean that God isn't working. But as I also said, there's no room for complacency here. We must make every effort to deal with those problems that arise. Why else do the New Testament writers spend so long rebuking, cajoling, teaching churches where there were problems? Because they knew that it mattered. And here we see the apostles took this seriously and they took decisive action. We read, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So they called everyone together. And they instructed the church to pick out seven men. And we notice the specifications they gave for these men. These were to be men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These were to be men of high caliber. And indeed, we see from the subsequent passage, they really were. And when these men had been selected, the apostles prayed for them and laid their hands on them. So they delegated authority to these men to deal with the issue. And they evidently did that. And they, that problem was solved. But though this is important, and there are a number of lessons we can learn from this, this isn't what I want us to focus our attention on today. Because I think there is an even more important lesson here that Luke wants us to learn. Um, lessons. And the first of these is that this problem could have impacted the growth of the church. This is point four. The problem could have impacted the growth of the church. If we look at the structure of this passage, what do we see? Well, in verse one, we read that in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. Then we read of a problem that arose, followed by a response to that problem. Then in verse 7, we read, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So the church was growing, and then something happened, and then the church continued to grow. Now, structure is important. The New Testament writers are very careful in how they structured what they wrote, and they're very careful about what they chose to address. So in this passage, we are introduced to Stephen, to Philip and the others, and we do see how the apostles responded to a specific problem. There's something more significant here for us to learn. And that is that the the growth of the church at this time was not inevitable. If it was, then verse 7 would have been redundant. We've been told in verse 1 that the church is growing. So if what happened between verses 1 and verses 7 couldn't have impacted the growth of the church, then why tell us at the end of the passage that it continued to grow? Clearly we're told this because the outcome could have been different. The growth of the church could have been slowed or even stopped, at least in that place at that time. Now, God is building his church, and we're told that none of Satan's plans will succeed in stopping it. But God might have had to use different people at a different time. And I think that's very sobering. That although God will ultimately have the victory, his kingdom will advance, it might not have advanced at that time in the church in Jerusalem. And it will not inevitably advance today here in Chertsey. Although God is sovereign and his plans will ultimately prevail... 
He has chosen to be helped or to be hindered by us. Think about that for a moment. The way in which the Almighty God works out his purposes are, through his choice, affected by the actions of his people. We are called to partner with God. This series through Acts, we're seeking to highlight what it means to partner with the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that our partnership makes a real difference for good or for bad. And that's both sobering and exciting. Our partnership with the Holy Spirit in the work of God is both a privilege and a great responsibility. See, our actions can hinder the work of God. But they can also unleash God's power and blessing. In verse 7 we read that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, the church didn't just carry on growing, it started to grow even faster. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. And even great numbers of the priests who had been particularly resistant to the gospel, were saved and added to the church. You see, a problem arose, but the way that the apostles responded to that problem not only allowed the church growth to continue, but actually facilitated its increase. So we've already seen that the apostles recognized the seriousness of the problem, and they took decisive steps to deal with it. But I want to note that they didn't actually do the work themselves. And more importantly, I want us to note the reason why. This is point five then. The apostles didn't allow themselves to be distracted, but devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. You know, I think there were some in the church who were calling on the apostles to get personally involved to sort out this dispute. And of course they could have done They had the necessary wisdom, they had the ability, and they certainly had the authority. And they wouldn't have viewed this task as being beneath them. Remember, these were men that had experienced Jesus washing their feet. They knew that the leaders of the church were to be servants of all. But despite all this, they still said, no, it's not right for them to serve at tables. And why was this then? It's because they correctly saw this as a distraction from the primary task that God had called them to do. They knew that the health and the growth of the church depended on the problem being resolved, but they also had the wisdom to understand that if it was resolved in the wrong way, then the health and the growth of the church would still suffer. So what was their response? They said that it was not right for them to wait on tables. Why? because this would require them to take time away from prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to wait at tables. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the result, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The apostles knew that the key to church growth was prayer and faith. Faith which comes from grasping the truth of God's word. And faith, let me remind you, is a trusting in the goodness, the faithfulness, the dependability of God. Trusting that he is and always will be true to his word. 
So prayer and God's word are key. Now clearly there's a message here for church leaders. They neglect prayer and the ministry of the word at their peril. But the message isn't limited to them. It applies to every one of us as children of God. It applies to every member of God's church. So what we see in these verses are two specific, fundamental, and very practical ways that we can partner with the Holy Spirit. Now we're talking a lot about partnering with the Holy Spirit at the moment. It involves a number of different things. But right here, at the foundation level, we see that it is about giving time to prayer and to the Word. If we think that partnering with the Holy Spirit is perhaps something a little bit mystical, a bit weird or intangible, well, this grounds it right to earth. You don't need an advanced degree in theology to study the Bible. You don't need to be a spiritual superhero to pray. What you do need is a determination to say yes to God, a commitment to make time. There's an advert you might have seen for a certain insurance company website with actor Timothy Murphy. You see him driving through a chaotic metropolis. Now, he's very good, and I'm not going to try and imitate his voice. But he starts by saying this. He says, so much confusion. Buy this thing and that thing and the next thing. And he finishes by saying, don't be confused. Anybody remember that? Nobody's seen it at all, really. Anyway, oh, you missed that. Well, if you do see it, you'll remember it. And, but change the words a bit. So much distraction. There's this thing and there's that thing and there's the next thing. And there are always so many things to distract us. And some of them we need to learn to leave alone. Some of them do need attention, just as sorting out the dispute in the church needed to be done. What we need, like the apostles, is the wisdom to know which is which and not to allow ourselves to be distracted from what God is calling us to do. So don't be distracted. Perhaps because prayer and study and meditation on the word are such basic Christian disciplines, we get blasé about them. Perhaps we think that as we mature, we'll move on to something more sophisticated. Perhaps we aren't sure how much they really achieve. Perhaps we think that these are the things we do before we get on with the real work. But here we're reminded again that giving time to prayer and to the word are the real work. It is through prayer and the word that we partner with God in what he's doing. It is through prayer that we, as ordinary people, can see amazing and supernatural things happen. James reminds us that Elijah was an ordinary man, just like us. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And when he did that, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, it started to rain. So James encourages us to pray. He says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And throughout Acts, we see a continual emphasis on the place of prayer in the early church. And of course, we also see an account of the way that God worked mighty miracles and added to the church through that time. And guess what? It's not a coincidence. The two are both linked. 
In Romans, Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In this context, Paul is saying that people will come to believe in the message of the gospel and put their trust in God when they hear the word spoken. So we need to know the word of God so that we can share it. But it's also true to say that our faith will increase as we meditate on and absorb the word of God. And Jesus tells us that by faith, we will see mountains moved. By faith, we will see the miraculous. By faith, we will be able to present the good news of the gospel with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so again, we see the foundational importance of the word of God for a healthy and growing church. Prayer and the word. The apostles recognized that these were key ways in which they and we are able to partner with the Holy Spirit and see the church grow in numbers and in maturity. And that's really important. But I am aware there are dangers with me saying this to you. There's a danger that you will go away feeling condemned that you don't pray enough or spend time enough in the Word. The danger you think, I've just imposed another burden onto an already overburdened life. And if that's you this morning, if that's what you're thinking, then I just want to address you specifically for a moment. You see, there is a place for disciplined study of the Bible and of prayer and making this a regular part of your life. And I want to suggest to you that is a good thing. But if you're thinking of going from here, telling yourself, you must pray more because Adrian told you to, then I want to say to you, please don't do it. If that's how you've heard the message this morning, then just don't respond. Don't try to pray more. Don't try to read the Bible more because we haven't been released from slavery to be brought into condemnation. But if that is you, keep listening because I hope that by the time I've finished, you'll understand me differently. But first, there's another danger I want to address. And that's the danger that you go away from here thinking that the growth of the church is down to us. That God will help us if we pray but ultimately, it's our responsibility. And from what I've said this morning, I think that you could pick up that message, but it's wrong, and so I want you to see what I've said in its proper context. You see, as we partner with the Holy Spirit, it is really important that we realise that we are not the senior partners in this venture. We are not even equal partners. This, I think is point six. We are genuine partners, but we are not equal partners. See, this is God's work. He is fully capable of doing it without us. Jesus said that he will build his church and none of the devil's schemes will be able to overcome it. So our inclusion in this project is not because God needs us, but because he wants us. He wants us to experience the joy of being involved with him in his work. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but I want to stay with this partnership thing for a moment because it's important we grasp it. You see, it is a genuine partnership. We are the junior partners, but we are real partners. We're not just observers. What we do actually matters. That's what I've been stressing this morning. The fact that there was conflict in the early church, it mattered the way the apostles handled that crisis really mattered. 
If they ignored it or allowed themselves to be distracted by handling it wrong, it would have impacted the growth of the church at that time. And similarly for us, what we do or don't do has a real impact. We are genuine partners. But we are partners through God's choice, not because of necessity. We are partners because he wants to involve us not because he couldn't have done it otherwise. We are partners because he knows that we can do what he has called us to do and that through doing it, we will be drawn into closer relationship with him. He has made us partners for our benefit. It's our privilege to work alongside him, but he carries the load and not us. An illustration might just help to reinforce this. Imagine it's a man's birthday and his wife thinks that it would be good to bake him a special cake. I think that sounds like a very reasonable sort of scenario. But imagine that this couple have a young child. And the mother thinks that it would be lovely for her daughter to be able to share in the joy of making and presenting the cake. So she invites the young girl to come alongside her, and the child pours and mixes, and eggs and flour and dishes are strewn across the kitchen. And much mess and chaos and confusion later, and a cake is produced. Now, I want you to imagine the beam on that little girl's face as she stands next to her mother and presents that cake to her father. Imagine her joy and her pride as she says, Look what we made, her and her mum together. Now ask yourself this, could she have done it on her own? No, she couldn't, exactly. Could her mother have done it more quickly and better without her? Yes. But was it a genuine collaboration? Was that little girl justified in saying, we made it? Yes, she was. Her contribution and her achievement were real. The joy of working with her mother was real. And the tears in the eyes of the father, they were real too. God has chosen us to partner with him. And the role he has given us is a genuine one. But he has included us because he wants us to have the delight and joy of working with him. The joy of sharing in the end result. And that's what I want to call you to this morning. Not to lay a burden on you to pray more and to study the Bible more. Not to burden you with the responsibility for the growth of the church. But to see that God, in his great love, has invited us to work with him on his great project. Jesus is building his church. It was his plan from the beginning. Before the world was even made, he had a plan to gather a people to himself, a people that could live in relationship with him, a people who could share in the love, the joy and the delight that existed between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived of the glorious riches that God has in store for his people. 
Jesus' passionate desire is to bring people to this place of fellowship with him, a place so amazing that it defies comprehension. And what Jesus desires will happen. There is no power, no person, no circumstance. There is nothing in all creation that will stand in the way of Jesus achieving his purpose. The cake, if you like, will be made. He is building a glorious church, a church that will be radiant, a bride that will be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. But true to his character of overflowing love and goodness and kindness, he has said to us, his children, come, join with me in this work. He's calling us to be a people whose hearts beat in tune with his heart. A people who will be caught up in his dream to draw the nations to himself. A people who will share his delight in seeing the blind see and the captives freed. And that's why the emphasis on prayer and the word this morning. Because God ultimately, what he wants from us is not our work. He can take care of building his church. But he wants us. He wants us to enjoy relationship with him. It's about sharing his heart. He wants to spend time with us and in his word. To cry out to him, to share with us his passions and his desires. To ask him to teach us how to think his thoughts. To feel what he feels. To see what he sees. He wants us to be caught up in his plans and purposes. He wants our wills to be so entwined with his that we become one with him. And out of that unity of heart and will, he wants us to pray. Don't be distracted. Okay, it's important. Out of that unity of heart and will, he wants us to pray. It's one of the principal ways that we will partner with him by echoing his desires in prayer. Pray that his kingdom will come. Pray that his will will be done and that his church will be built. And not just in general terms, but here in Chertsey, in Adelstone, in Thorpe, amongst our friends, our families, our contacts. What is God's heart for these people, for our local area? What does that mean for us? How can we get involved in what God wants to do here? So let's not be passive. Let's put aside any past discouragements. Let's seek to resolve any current issues that might hinder us. Let us pick ourselves up and press on. Let's earnestly engage with God on behalf of the place that he has called us to, the place that he has put us. Because his desire is to do something amazing. And his delight is to see us share with him in that work. We want to please our Heavenly Father, to bring him joy, and we can. Let's partner with him in his work. And let us see his church 
Jesus' bride, continue to grow.